You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, I chat with Eric McNulty, a consultant, writer, speaker, and catalyst for positive leadership. Eric talks about real-time disaster response, the connections between disaster response and organizational leadership, and how today's leaders can achieve order beyond control and influence beyond authority. Eric will talk more about instituting effective leadership at the Cultivate Leadership Training at Strata Plus Hadoop World in San Jose in March. Without further ado, here's Eric. Enjoy the episode. Eric, let's start by talking a little bit about your background and, and what you do now. Um, I, right now, I've been at Harvard for 18 years, believe it or not, and I worked at the business school for 12 years before joining this leadership program, which is the joint program of the Kennedy School and the School of Public Health. Now, I spent my early career in communications roles, uh, both in retail and then in publishing, mm-hmm. and I have found those skills to have carried over very nicely, although it's, on paper it doesn't look like a, a very logical transition, but actually those, those skills have carried forward quite well in, into this more recent uh, research and writing and, and, uh, and teaching on leadership. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about how that's carried over well, like the applications that, you, that you're bringing forward from publishing? And Absolutely. Well, I said the, 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 the raw communications piece, one of the things we find in every uh, disaster we look at or every organization we go into Communications are always an issue. It's something we've never gotten right as human beings. We never, we never get perfect at it. And then sometimes it's interpersonal communications. Sometimes it's interorganizational, more formal channels. Sometimes it's working with the media that's a real challenge. But there's always a communications issue. So understanding that dynamic of different audiences, different stakeholders, understanding how some what someone hears is, is their reality. It doesn't matter what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, teaching people that is really eye-opening. And I think it's only if you've been... Um, either on one side of the microphone or the other to begin to understand that you really internalize it. And so trying to carry that forward has been really useful. Now, another thing that you've done is worked with the FEMA field innovation team. Yes. What, can you talk a little bit about that work? Absolutely. And it was a fascinating time. It was right after Hurricane Sandy. I was here in New York and New Jersey. And FEMA deployed their first ever innovation team which meant they were trying to innovate in the midst of disaster response, mm. which is something people had traditionally not done. You sort of innovated beforehand, then you went out and deployed what you had come up with, and then you'd evaluate afterwards. And one of our former students uh, was head of this disaster, this uh, innovation team, and she said, you know, come on down and hang out. And so I came down and spent a couple of days with them, and it was really fascinating to see how they were, what they were trying to do was to bring together the formal response network, so in this case it was FEMA and Coast Guard and all the, the big government folks, with the informal, so the community groups, Occupy Sandy, uh, the Red Hook Initiative, and others who were in the community trying to do work, and how do you leverage the ingenuity and the local knowledge of those informal groups with the capacity and the tools and the resources of the formal. And so they were coming together and, uh, say, building mesh networks in some cases, they were crowdsourcing uh, evaluation of photographs. So they would get the, civil, the civilian air patrol mm-hmm. to do overviews of the affected areas. They'd upload that and the people anywhere in the country could look at it and give it a basic evaluation of severe, moderate, or mild in terms of the damage. And they were able to get situational awareness very quickly in a way they never would have been able to otherwise. And it was all volunteer. It was all free. Wow. So it, And they did a number of these things. They did a number of these, because they were able to innovate in real time in the field and see what worked and what didn't, um, the then deputy administrator, who's now a colleague of mine at Harvard, um, said it fundamentally changed the way FEMA operates. Right. And it was, it was the, it was the uh, 
the willingness and the courage to innovate in the midst of disaster response. And so I was very lucky to spend some time with them. Yeah, that's interesting. The real-time response part of disaster response. That's, that's really <clears throat> fascinating. Was it successful, do you think? I think it was successful. And they had a number of metrics of people who were you know, getting their compensation faster and just being able to rebuild their houses, or in some cases being able to stay in and fix their dwellings rather than having to move out and go to a shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a real, it was, you know, in, in the technology space, you're very familiar with user experience. Right. Um, the user experience was pretty horrible. Right. And part of the, uh, the donated services here were people uh, from design firms and, and others who were used to designing user experiences and looked, they looked at it in real life and said, this could be a lot better. Let's make some changes. And so, again, it was a willingness to say, why wait till this is over and then form a task force mm-hmm. that will think about it and uh, do it next time? Let's just do it now. Right. And uh, you tend to get in, in disaster response, tend to go into straight execution mode. And execution is really important, but it's always quality improvement. So if you can make adjustments along the way, it's a good thing to do. And this was the first time that people were brave enough to do it. Right. And I wonder if some of those applications were carried forward and maybe even outside of disaster response. Like, you know, the whole real-time initiative is is big in the data space and the design space and product space and all of that. So that's, that's interesting. Absolutely. And they've begun to bring some of that into government. It's, it's, it's slow, but they've seen new ways of doing things. And I can see how it carries forward to understand how much people can contribute to, to an effort. Mm-hmm. This is, a, again, a basic leadership principle is how do you unlock all the energy, the ideas, the commitment of someone toward a shared goal? Mm-hmm. And if you're just telling them to go execute, you're saying, okay, you, know, you bring your hands, but leave your head at home. Right. And this was bring your head, your heart, and your hands. Let's mm-hmm. make it better. And sort of related to that, you've done some writing on those connections mm-hmm. between leadership and disaster response, particularly with Katrina and with the Boston Marathon bombings. Can you talk a little bit about those connections? Absolutely. What we have found over time is that you know, being on the ground, watching leaders in high-stakes, high-pressure situations like the Boston Marathon bombing response, like Deepwater Horizon, like Hurricane Katrina or Sandy, it's sort of the Olympics of leadership. So it's it's when things are absolutely at their toughest and people may die if you make the wrong decision, mm-hmm. which is not what most of us face in our organizational lives. But like the Olympics, you don't start practicing the day you get there. You practice for a long time before you get there. So the fundamental right. skills are ones you can use every single day. And you can use them at work, you can use them at home. And there are things that we teach. And I tell people, here's how you go home and use it with your kids. Mm-hmm. I was talking today when I was giving my talk about being present and how important it is to be present when you're with someone. And that's really important when you want to lead. It works great on a date, too. <laughs> There's lots of applications for these things beyond a quote-unquote leadership setting. Right. And what kinds of research are you working on right now? Right now, we're doing a lot of work around cyber. Um, the cyber threats are growing, and they're going from disruptive to dis- destructive. Mm-hmm. And there's an increased need for public and private entities to work well together. And there are a whole bunch of obstacles as to why they don't. You know, security class uh, clearances, on the one hand, there's fear of regulatory oversight or proprietary information on the other side. And this, fundamentally, it's a leadership problem. It's finding mm-hmm. a way for these different parties who have a shared interest, they don't want bad things to happen. Uh, to come together and be able to collaborate and work well together. So we're working on that. That research is just starting now, and we hope to get it finished over the next six months or so. Right. In a talk, um, maybe even related uh, to this, but in a talk you addressed the, the changing demands on leaders and the implications of those changes. What is changing in the landscape that is driving that the changing demands? I think there's a fundamental shift from leadership being thought of as sort of a senior management function to an independent function. And what I mean by that is leadership is really about the human factors. 
And a lot of our management systems are very linear, and it's about optimizing throughput and standardizing output. And I don't mean those things are bad, but when it comes to leading people, there's a lot of emotional emotion involved, there's neuroscience involved. And so you have to be thinking about those things. And the other change that's going on is our world is much more turbulent than it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, the military has come up with this acronym called uh, VUCA, where it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So you, there's not a lot of predictability, there's not a lot of stability. And how do you, if you're leading, maintain your the clarity of your voice, the clarity of your vision, to motivate people, to inspire them, to get them to where you need to be amidst all that craziness. And you need to be thinking about it. It's one of the things I talk about in my, in my talk here for O'Reilly is this notion to move from linearity to complexity mm-hmm. and realize there's a lot of things, a lot of factors at play that you don't control, but you can have influence over. So how do you do that? How do you be thinking beyond control, thinking order beyond control, thinking influence beyond authority, right. and which is a different way of functioning for a lot of people. And so what kind of advice would you offer leaders going forward? I think the first thing is to have a basic mindset that says, no one has all the answer, everyone has part of the answer. And so as trite as that may sound, when you start with from that point, you become open to a lot of input. You become looking, asking questions and looking for new information. You're not trying to narrow it down. You're trying to broaden up and look for patterns mm-hmm. and say, hey, what, what don't I know? What more can I find out? And who else might I be able to get it from? Which takes you to looking for some non-traditional uh, sources sometimes. And that's really critical. Right. And so is that kind of looking outside or expanding inside? It's inside as well. I mean, one of the things I, points I make about leadership is that um, it's not about role or rank. It's about behavior. And there are, in, in really in strong organizations, there are leaders at every level. And so it means you may not be looking up, you may be looking down, you may be mm. looking across, you may be looking for those, those people who are have that leadership capacity. I read an interesting, I think it was a tweet the other day, it said, let's stop teaching our managers leadership, let's start teaching our leaders management. <laughs> and find the people who actually can connect with individuals, who can identify raw talent, who can work with people who have high emotional intelligence. We can teach them management. Let's Let's... Stop trying to teach everybody the leadership piece and find your really good leaders and promote them into the roles. Right. And it's, uh, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm going to change directions just a little that's bit fun. here. You're, you're working on a book titled Leadership Future, Catalyzing Positive Change in a Turbulent World. And you've opted to self-publish this book and crowdsource the production money for it and in service of a very good cause. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Absolutely. And I have to say, I'm glad you asked about it because I'm behind schedule and you talking (laughs) about it will will force me to get back on track. So the book is actually a collection of writing. It's white papers that I've done as well as some columns that I've written for Strategy and Business Magazine. But they're around this topic of having a more systems-oriented view, looking at the big picture and seeing the complexity in the world as a way to lead and try and orient people toward that because of the changes we're seeing in more of a more volatile, more uncertain, complex and, and, and ambiguous world. And so I'm trying to get that across. I'm self-publishing it because I want all the proceeds to go toward elephant preservation. And I've chosen elephant preservation because I love elephants. Just, mm-hmm. I just think they're a fabulous and fascinating animals. But also I think we as human beings if we don't figure out how to save elephants and, and save the environment in which they operate, so they are co-existers on a planet with us, we can't save ourselves. Hmm. We've got to be looking bigger than us. And I happen to pick elephants. You could pick any number of species to do that with. So it's, right. but it's, we need to stop being so anthrocentric uh, and understand that we live on this planet with many other species and there's a great deal of interdependence. 
it's not just about us. So that's right. why and I want the self-publishing will allow me the greatest control, but it also will allow me to direct the greatest amount of money toward the end cause. Mm -hmm. What I hope is to raise the equivalent of what a, one animal gets when they're poached. So it's mm -hmm. about $100,000. Wow. So we will see. But now that we've talked about it, I have to get started. Now we'll get it started very shortly. I mean, the writing is largely done, but it's getting the production done. Yeah. Have you chosen a platform for the crowdfunding? I think I'm going to go with Kickstarter, mm -hmm. but I've been talking to friends who've done various projects to see what are the ups and downs and ins and yeah. outs of each one of these. But I, I want to do, again, I want to get the most money as possible that goes to the to the end cause. And I'm also looking at there any organizations I will work with from the very beginning to say, you'll get it, rather than I may take votes and say, you know, should it go to the International Fund for Animal Welfare or Born Free or whomever? Right. And do it that and crowdsource that as well. Or may go to one of them and say, if you'll help market this, um, you'll get a big, you'll, you'll, you'll get the proceeds and see how we can have the greatest impact. Well, I really look forward to that campaign. Um, to close our conversation, I wanted to ask a, a sort of general, very personal question. What people or projects are you following right now? What kinds of things are you finding personally fascinating these days? I spend a lot of time these days looking at neuroscience. Yeah. And the neuroscience of leadership, just the neuroscience of life. I mean, this started several years ago. Um, but I am just endlessly fascinated by we're learning more and more about how our brains function and they aren't the way we thought they were and the, the biases we carry around, the, the ways we function under stress and some things we have attributed to personality or education in some cases. Those are ways we're, we're sort of hardwired and learning more and more about that I think gives us greater understanding into how we act and operate as human beings, which in turn helps us understand how to act and operate as leaders. Mm -hmm. So now people often ask me, so what leadership book should I read? I'm always pointing toward neuroscience. Yeah, interesting. Well, Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. My it was pleasure. a great Thank time. you. Eric can be reached on Twitter at Richard Earth. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Oh.